0: Mark 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking of Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no no longer saw any one of them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray for a moment. Father, we pray that you'd help us to uh, understand more clearly this extraordinary story of uh, Jesus with Elijah and Moses and Peter and James and John up on that mountain. It seems uh, extraordinarily remote from our day-to-day experience, but we we, we pray that you'd, you'd help us to get our heads around it this evening and to see and to learn what you want us to see and learn. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it is a strange story. And of course, because it's a story of a mountain, during my preparation, I found my, um oh yes, children, sorry, you should be going to your groups. Sorry, Pete. Now, I think that's definitely the second time you've forgotten that. <laughs> I have to record everything for his report, you see, this is the thing. Children, you are most welcome to go to your group if you want to go, yeah, okay, great. Just slightly alarming, everybody started walking out as I started preaching. (laughs) Anyway, there I was preparing my Sermon on the Transfiguration, thinking about a mountain, and as so often I find when um, mountains come into the uh, Bible stories, my mind wandered off to the prospective ski holiday that is coming in April. And um, it so happened that my wandering mind was accompanied by an email that came through with the text of a proposed tract that is going to be used uh, this spring in various ski resorts, but specifically in Verbier, where uh, I'm going to be the minister in charge of the English Church for a couple of weeks in April, with a team from Christians in Sport uh, helping at a sort of mission to Verbier. Tough work, but someone has to do it, and uh, and uh, we're trying to produce this um, bit of uh, literature, Christian resource that we can give to people on the ski slopes and invite them to an evening in uh, one of the pubs in the evening, and there uh, chat with them and uh, try and present the gospel to them. And the text of the one of the texts of this proposed um, uh, tract, which had an extremely attractive layout. Went like this. I want to share a little bit of of it with you. You carve down the slope, your tracks marking a string of faultless turns. Have been watching me Uh, on a. (laughs) If only on a good day, there's a perfect connection between your skill and the challenge of the slopes. Up here in the crisp air, you're lifted above the muddle of everyday life. It's why we love the mountains. Wouldn't it be great if you could take that certainty with you when you get the plane home? Standing on a high col, faced with an unfamiliar glacier, you can lose your nerve. That's when you need a guide you can trust. If you follow in his tracks, they'll lead you past the yawning crevasses, over firm snow bridges, and finally to the exhilaration of a successful run. Christians today trust Jesus to lead them. Instead of hurtling through life out of control, they follow in his tracks. It isn't an easy ride. Jesus doesn't do dull. Don't go for it if you can't take on a challenge. But if you'd like to see relationships being mended, confidence replace uncertainty, calm replace fear, go for it. The Spirit of God can work in all of us if we let him. The message seemed to me to be become a follower of Jesus And the thrill of a skiing holiday can be yours 24 7. And it got me wondering what our expectation, we're not going to use that track, by the way, uh, it got me wondering what our expectation of the Christian life is. What is in it for us? Why do we become followers of Jesus? The fastest growing brand, if I can use that word, of Christianity around the world is, of course, Pentecostalism. And Pentecostalism is largely a 20th century movement, and we have all benefited tremendously from the freedom, from the release of giftings, a revolution in praise, music, and much, much more that both the Charismatic movement and Pentecostalism have brought into the church. So don't think that I'm standing here attacking the charismatic movement, far from it. I spent my first curacy in a very lively but quite conservative church in North London. I learnt a lot there and it was a great church. After about uh, seven years or so I moved to the staff of St Aldate's down the road here in Oxford when I started working full time with Christians in sport. And it was the first time that I'd actually been a member of a charismatic church. I was amazed to see smiling faces all around me and people looking as if they were actually enjoying coming to church. I was greatly encouraged and blessed by my years there. But we should also be aware that there is an extreme manifestation of Pentecostalism, sometimes known as the prosperity gospel, which emphasizes what God will do for us in this life which at times, I think, can promise more for this life than God actually promises in the Bible, particularly in the areas of health, wealth, and happiness. And I couldn't help feeling as I read my proposed ski tract that that was tending in that direction. And I think today's reading, the end of Mark 8, and the story of the transfiguration, is an antidote, an appropriate antidote to prosperity teaching now let me remind you what has happened because we dealt with the immediate preceding passage last sunday evening in case you weren't here let me just quickly remind you a division occurs in mark's gospel at chapter 8 and verse 29 up to that point the main question and the question is going to appear on the screen conveniently the main question that mark has been answering is who is jesus And all the evidence has persuaded the disciples, well at least their spokesman Peter has been persuaded, that Jesus is the Christ. He confesses him as God's king, come to rule over his kingdom, and the disciples in a sense therefore are the first citizens of this new kingdom. And of course this realisation aroused in the disciples, and particularly in Peter in this story, a tremendous expectation... If the king was amongst them, then all their problems must be over. Political change must be imminent. Out would go the the unjust, corrupt dictatorship of the Romans and their puppet Jewish authorities, and in would come just and merciful rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Social change and economic improvement would follow. Surely the disciples were thinking, health, wealth and prosperity in the kingdom of God are now certain the king has come. So imagine what a shock it must have been for them. And don't forget they've been seeing signs of this kingdom for eight chapters. The signs that Jesus the king controls all the things that control them. Sickness, the weather, natural laws and so on. What a shock then, verse 31, must have been to them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus is teaching them to expect something quite different. You see, the question, who is Jesus, has been answered. Mark's question now is, why has Jesus come? Has he come to bring health, wealth, and prosperity in this life? And he begins by telling them about his own necessary sufferings, verse 31. And you can see why Peter rebuked him. Of course, Peter rebuked him. That can't be right, Peter's thinking. That can't be right. That's not what we expected at all. That's not what we signed up for. But it gets even worse in verse 34. Even more horrifying for him. Let me read again, as Kevin read just now, 34 to 37. He called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. He wanted everybody to know what to expect. If anyone must come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. That means you're going to a place of execution. And follow, uh, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so on. This is pretty tough stuff. The other morning, a couple of weeks ago or so, I preached out at Kingston Bagpew's village out towards Swindon, where a former member of this church is now the vicar. It's a church that we're seeking to partner with and to encourage as a clergy team by going and helping them from time to time. And my passage that was given to me was the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And Jesus challenges this brilliant but greedy and covetous young man to give away all his money and come follow him. And as you may recall from the story of the rich young ruler, it was too much for the man and he goes away sorrowful. And Peter, astonished that Jesus should set the bar so high for this man, why make it so difficult for him to be a disciple, blurts out to Jesus in that story, we have left everything to follow you. What then shall there be for us? We've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? What's in it for us? And it's a very good question and might be one that many of us are asking. In the wilderness times of our Christian life, we may well ask that question. What's in it for this? What am I going to get out of this? What is there in following Jesus for us? What are the benefits? Is it all to be cross-carrying misery? Is self-flagellating, self-denial all that we can look forward to? Will there be no chance whatever of healing, of health and happiness in this world? Would my ski tract be better, saying that Life with Jesus is a virtually impassable black run, covered in life-threatening moguls, and you just have to grit your teeth and get skiing? The whole thing is a totally terrifying experience, but there's a vague hope of a fun, brief après ski at the end. Is that the tract we should be handing out in Verbien? Well. Perhaps Jesus could read the panic on the disciples' face as he outlines the immediate future and began to explain what the purpose of his coming was. Uh, How surprised they must have looked. But it seems to me that the story of the transfiguration is Jesus' gracious response to this panic and panic that we sometimes might feel ourselves when we can't make sense of the Christian life. He tells them, some of you will not taste death until you really do see what you expect. I.e., some of you will not taste death until you see God's kingdom coming in power and glory. Beginning of chapter 9. Now, there is a great debate uh, about what Jesus meant by that saying, that they would uh, see God's kingdom coming in power. Some say that he meant the experience of seeing the great sacrifice of Calvary and the subsequent resurrection and ascension. But all the disciples, except, Jesus, except Judas, of course, saw those amazing events, not just some of them. Some say he meant the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the tongues of fire empowering the early church for mission. But I tend to favor the more obvious explanation, and that is that he's referring to the experience of the transfiguration which Peter, James, and John had some six days later. It seems to me that's the obvious reading of it. Some of you, i.e. Peter, James, and John, will not taste death until you've seen uh, what is going to happen, until you see God's kingdom coming in power. So don't forget the question that Mark is now asking his reader to consider. The shift has occurred. No longer who is Jesus, but why has Jesus? Jesus come. He takes the three most mature disciples, the ones that he feels are most ready for this experience, up the mountain, not of course to ski, not even to experience the delights of this world. This isn't a holiday in the lake district or walking in the highlands. He takes them up the mountain to glimpse into another world altogether. Just turn back a few pages, we'll turn back to the, big, to, to the right to the end of the Old Testament, the last few verses of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. I want to look at Malachi chapter 4, it is literally the last few, I haven't got your edition of the Bible here, so it's on a different page, but I think you can find the last page of the Old Testament, all right? Uh, Malachi chapter 4, and let me just read uh, a little bit of this. This is, the, this is how the Old Testament ends. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. These words had been written about Moses and Elijah some 460 years earlier, before Jesus, some 460 years before, but the hope that they contained still burned strongly in many Jewish hearts, and that hope would have been in the hearts of these humble Galilean fishermen, Peter, James, and John. Moses, the great rescuer from slavery, was the one who, got, who brought God's people to God's place. He was the great rescuer. They got to the promised land under Moses' leadership. Only after he had gone did it really go pear shaped. Elijah, great prophet Elijah, revived the promise that God would restore his people and he called them to holiness. And we are told that an Elijah figure would return when the kingdom comes. But of course Moses and Elijah were dead. Now the Elijah figure, John the Baptist, is dead. And yet we have the king with us. Moses and Elijah's presence at the Transfiguration confirm the words that Jesus uses much later when he comes before Pontius Pilate. Do you remember, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Peter, James, and John witness Jesus talking with Elijah and Moses to demonstrate that even they were not ultimately speaking of the political restoration of Israel, but of a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. What in the book of Revelation is called a new heaven and a new earth. So I think in this extraordinary passage, Jesus is showing the disciples as they move into this second half of the gospel, what they can be certain about and what they need to be uncertain about. And I want to try and summarize that under three headings. First of all, uh, three uncertainties, three uncertainties. The first uncertainty is that we will have health, wealth and happiness in this life. It is uncertain that we will have health, wealth and happiness in this life. Nowhere in the Bible, and nowhere in Jesus' words are his followers promised that they will be immune from the normal problems that confront human living. We are still tempted by sin, and of course, sadly, and much to our regret, I'm sure, we too often succumb to those temptations. Graciously and wonderfully, our loving God hears the cries for healing from his people, and according to his sovereign will, he, he He intervenes. We know that that can happen. But we manipulate him at our peril. Nowhere are we promised riches and success. But time and again, the Christian finds a desire and a motivation to work rather than to dissipate their lives. Expensive habits can be overcome. Wasteful extravagance is abandoned. Christians often do prosper, the Protestant worth ethic, and so on. But we can't be certain of it. We cannot be certain of it. The Christian who denies the right to run his own life, in other words, the Christian who loses his life for Jesus and for the Gospel, finds that the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life enables him to rejoice in the harshest of circumstances. He gains, as Jesus says, his soul. But happiness, in a worldly sense, no certainty of that at all. Secondly, we cannot be certain about the time of our death. We cannot be certain about the time of our death. In fact, we cannot even any longer be certain that we will die. And if we do die, we cannot be certain of when it will occur or how it will occur. Jesus is quite clear that an end point to to the life that we know now is coming. That end point may be for each of us when we die. It may be sooner or it may be later. But it may be when he returns in glory. It may be that we will not taste death until we actually experience his kingdom coming in power in full consummation. As Paul puts it, we may meet him in the sky or we may meet him here. We cannot be certain. We cannot be certain, and we should prepare for either. Thirdly, we cannot be certain of the date of, Jew- of Jesus' return. We cannot be certain of the length of this interim period between the first coming of Jesus, that's the cross carrying Saviour, and his return. As the King of Glory, winding up history, we live in that interim period—the age of the Spirit, the era of the Church. That is how God. That is where God has placed us. Even Jesus said that only the Father knew the date of the end time, and yet, and yet, loonies on the fringe of Christianity have tried again and again and again to date the end. We may be sure that the end will come, but we cannot be certain when that will be. Three uncertainties that we should learn to live with. And now three certainties that the story of the Transfiguration, I believe, encourages us to live by. First, we can be certain of life in the spirit now. We can be certain of life in the spirit now. We can be certain of the presence of God in our lives, with us by His Spirit, in the heart of every believer. You see, Peter trudged up that mountain, and frankly, he made a bit of a fool of himself by suggesting that they build tabernacles or tents, shelters, for all of them to stay in. Let's stay on this mountain. It was foolish because it implied that the kingdom into which Jesus was giving them a glimpse was an earthly kingdom, a here and now kingdom. Did he suppose that Elijah and Moses had somehow returned in the flesh to stay there forever in his, in his little SAS bivouac? Years later, when uh, he wrote his letter, he had learned that life in the spirit... Life in the spirit, life with one foot in this future kingdom, but also living with the uncertainties here. This life in the spirit was inexpressibly joyful, but there is a vital future aspect to it. Just turn with me to 1 Peter, verses uh, 1, 8, and 9. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Pete, you could give me the page number for that, if you would. 1, 2, 1, 7. One, two, one, seven. Let's just read 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 together. This is Peter, years later. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For years, amidst trials and tribulations, Peter had experienced the true charisma of the Spirit. Sometimes of course in Peter's life, as we know, that manifested itself in dramatic ways, tongues, healing, prophetic insight, all the kind of things that we expect to see and do see when the Spirit moves amongst God's people. But above all else, and that's great, and we rejoice in it, but above all else, it gave him a quiet and still assurance of God's love and God's acceptance of him, both in this life and for the future. He lost his life, but he gained his soul. We should expect no less. We may be certain of life in the Spirit now. Secondly, we can be certain that the Christian life will involve struggles and even death. We can be certain that there will be many times in the Christian life when it will be hard both to believe and to live out our faith and we should have the expectation that there will be times when it is hard to believe and hard to live out our faith. Jesus consistently prepares his disciples for a battle. Paul and the writers of the New Testament later on engaged daily in that battle and wrote about it. Put on the whole armour of God. What did Paul mean other than be ready for a tough struggle? If you read on uh, later this evening before you go to bed and uh, read on in chapter 9 you will discover an extraordinary reality check that Peter, James and John get when they come down from the mountain. They have this mountaintop experience of God and it is the ultimate mountaintop experience appearing into eternity. Jesus with eternal fellowship with two great heroes of the Old Testament. It's a remarkable spiritual experience that they have. Within a few hours of coming down from the mountain, if you read on, they find themselves faced with and struggling with death, with disease, with dispute amongst themselves and with the devil himself in the form of an exorcism. Conveniently, four Ds so that you can remember. Within just a few hours, they are struggling with death, disease, dispute and the devil. And you don't have to belong to a church for very long to discover that we too struggle with these things. People die. A great saint died last night in this church. A light has gone out, Joyce Francois said to me this morning. A prayerful light. You may not have known uh, Audrey. She came uh, week by week. She was the little old lady at the back who had that little um, thing on wheels, little sort of um, bag on wheels that she dragged about. And she came here year after year, week after week, prayer meeting after prayer meeting. If you've never spoken to her, almost certainly she's prayed for you. Uh, death is a reality for us. Disease is a reality for us. We struggle with it all the time. We have a long prayer list of people on the back of our notice sheet, week by week. Dispute? Have we had any of those in church? Well, you've not been here long if you don't know that. And of course, it's a spiritual battle. We know that. The enemy is trying to destroy us. We must expect it to be hard to be a Christian, It will be so for us, so you can, if you like, choose an easier life than following Jesus. You can choose an easier life. Like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, you may feel that it is too hard to follow Jesus. There's too much to give up. But never forget the words of Jesus. Never forget that in the end, you lose everything. In the end, you lose everything. But please don't tell everyone, don't tell anyone that being a Christian is easy. It is certainly not a permanent ski holiday. But we can be certain, lastly, we can be absolutely certain, and this is what Jesus wanted Peter and James and John to see absolutely clearly. We can be certain of future glory. We can be certain of heaven. This is what the transfiguration is really all about. Realising that the disciples are horrified by what he says is going to happen to him and what is going to happen to them, Jesus gives to these three a glimpse, a vision of the future. They were pretty baffled, of course, they were baffled, and you can see that on the way down. They're discussing what rising from the dead mean. What on earth could that mean? Whatever happened up there? They think, what on earth was all that about? They're baffled by it. I suppose that, um, as we know, that Peter is Mark's main source for this gospel. Then later, after he became a witness of the resurrection, after he knew what happened after the cross that Jesus rose from the dead, I suppose he recalled this strange event and he understood it much more clearly uh, subsequent to the resurrection. He was certainly baffled at the time. They all were. But Peter, along with Moses and along with Elijah and along with James and along with John and along with all, Samantha, Job, whoever's sitting here this evening, all who trust in God's promises in Jesus, all who trust in God's promises in Jesus, will be with him in heaven. That is what the story tells us. We will be with him in heaven. This world will not be the end. So we can be certain that life in the Spirit is the best life. We can be certain that following Jesus will be challenging and we can be certain that heaven awaits us. We cannot be certain that we will get our heart's desires in this life, nor when and how we will die, nor when Jesus will return to wind up history. Those things we cannot be certain about. But personally, I think we have enough certainty to go on, and I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have conquered the wiles of Satan, you have overcome the world, and you have defeated the final enemy, death. And we thank you that on that mountain of transfiguration, just for a while, you have given us all a glimpse of what will be. Those who know you, those who trust your promises, us, we will be with you forever. We thank you for this glorious, glorious, glorious gift of salvation in Jesus' name.